What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm Scott Chaloner, and once again, I'll be exploring a new perspective on leadership, joined each week by a different CEO, CFO, director, president or government minister, and who knows, maybe even one day the Home Secretary, depending on how that Cabinet Office inquiry pans out. The aim here is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make this country work. We discuss everything from real estate to the need to innovate, and of course the success that makes the endeavour entirely worthwhile in the end. We also get their take, of course, on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Brendan O'Reilly, Managing Director of Fashion House Group, a property business based in Glasgow with a very different vision of real estate. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present Brendan O'Reilly. Brendan, a very warm welcome to you and ever thanks ever so much for joining us on the programme today. It's, uh, it's a delight. Uh, I can tell you I'm actually drinking my coffee from my uh, isolation home uh, from a parliamentary review mug that I got uh, last year or the year before. Uh, it's, it's nice to be here. Ah, fantastic. Um, it's uh, certainly nice having you on the air, Brendan. Um, now, you, of course, um, work um, at Fashion House Group um, in real estate in numerous countries, both uh, commercial and residential, and have around 140 employees under you. Uh, tell me, with the current COVID-19 situation, how has it really been for you trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because as well as the isolation, I can imagine it's uh, posed a huge challenge. Yeah, the, there, are, there are challenges on uh, several fronts. Um, uh, and uh, of course, um, we uh, instantly um, looked to our, our mission statements uh, and our values, uh, which I think are crucial in this time of crisis, uh, so that we can come out of the other end of this with our head held high on, on, on many uh, avenues of our business. Uh, and that's uh, predominantly our, our staff, keeping them safe and, and keeping them active. Uh, our investors making sure that we do everything we possibly can in circumstances that are unprecedented, um, and also uh, in terms of just generally uh, respecting, you know, the the, the whole kind of civil uh, code as well. Um, and what do I mean by that? It means that you know we're not we're not willy nilly willy nilly applying for loans or grants or anything else unless mm. we need it. Um, and that's something that's very important to our uh, to our business. We're a private equity business, um, and something that uh, I said uh, in my parliamentary review article uh, eighteen months ago, uh, which is specifically, you know, people don't care how much you have, they don't care how much you know, they care how much you care, and never ever has that statement been uh, so true. Uh, so we haven't lost any staff yet. We haven't asked anyone to take any discounts. Of course, we, the, the, the senior executives are looking at their. Uh, revenue and different things, uh, and and of course we're talking to our tenants and and to our banks. I would say on a fair and equitable basis, where in the main um, we are giving some uh, income away or costs away or something, and we're asking our tenants uh, to do the same or our banks or investors. So pretty balanced approach. Um, I've never worked uh, as many hours from uh, a, a dining room table in my home uh, in my life. But I'm really, I'm really pleased to say that uh, from my um, uh, experience so far, the yeah. the, the, the the experience uh, dealing with very difficult situations 
Um, we've already had letters from international brands saying thank you very much for your approach. We thought it, approach. We thought it was fair and equitable, and we're happy to follow it. So I, I'm pleased in terms of the process. Uh, just from a practical point of view, um, 140 staff divided by uh, into Russia, Romania, and Poland. Uh, one of the first things I did was I set up um, a, a Monday Russia, Tuesday Poland, Wednesday uh, Romania call. So we have a Teams call um, with all of the staff where they can talk, they can say anything they want, they can express concerns, ask questions, and of course uh, we, we discuss business. And then on a Friday uh, with my uh, business partners, Patrick and Mark, we have a world call where it's information from the board to our staff. And the, the staff in that situation, because there's 140, uh, they don't speak, uh, so they're all on mute, and we give a general overview. But one of the things that I particularly enjoy, because we are very much, uh, we're basically a, 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 a relatively small uh, and, and very, very close-knit uh, family business, not family as in relatives, but it feels like a family, is I started what I call a Friday wind-down, as in wine as in red wine, white wine. And uh, in Russia, between five and six, Romania, between five and six, uh, it's a bit tricky because that's UK three until four. Uh, we sit and everyone has to bring their own bottle. It's not, it's not an obligation. They come voluntarily. And they're uh, not allowed to talk about business, not allowed to talk about virus. And we've had desert island discs. We've had photographs of you when you were a child. We've had all different things. And just relax and uh, spend some time not talking about dark times. Uh, so, and that's been very popular. And I think, and this is the interesting thing about uh, these, you know, these times, some of these initiatives, which we've never done before, uh, in the in the same way, in the same timing, with the same groups, we will for sure continue after the virus. Uh, so there is there are some things that have happened that uh, that that we will continue. Absolutely, and you often hear it said that you do learn more in times of adversity than when things are going well, and especially as a business. And I'm sure you've learned a great many things, particularly about the resilience of your staff during this time as well. Yeah, and again, you know, it it makes me. <laughs> Extremely proud. We're a people business managing assets on behalf of our investors. And and, and what I see, uh, and of course, you, you, you see two sides of it. Um, 140 staff, uh, I think there are there are two or three that I'll be having a, a word with at the end where I don't see them rising up to the step, not many. Um, but the majority of staff, um, uh, and, and again, I think they appreciate the fact that as a board, we, we're committing to their salary and everything else, and we're not asking them. Uh, so far, to take cuts, if the, if the closures go beyond kind of three months, then maybe we'll have to do that, but so far not, and that's a commitment from, from us. But we've got uh, retail staff that are doing administrative uh, documentation to change agreements. Uh, we've got uh, commercial brokers that are talking to our tenants in a completely different way about debt for the first time in their life. Uh, we've got um, uh, receptionists that are, are helping the, the cleaning and security team in terms of monitoring the, the assets while they're closed, letting staff into the stores uh, to, to do inventory. So um, I, I'm very proud that, you know, in adverse, you know, these adverse situations, uh, that uh, those that are in our assets, because we have some essential staff uh, who have to attend, uh, are doing well. The other thing that I didn't mention was, and, and I, I think these things are all about opportunity, um, we said to our staff, look, you know, you, you're not commuting, so you've probably got a couple of hours every day to do that. You know, you're working from home. It's a bit more, you know, difficult in terms of that environment. So we created a, a, an online learning uh, platform for all of our staff where if halfway through the day they get, get kind of, you know, a bit punch drunk 
on legal or accounting or whatever, they can do go and do something that is, is entirely different. And again, that surprised me because the first time I asked in these world calls on a Friday, you know, what's everyone doing? The lawyers were talking about doing uh, marketing uh, uh, learning. Uh, you know, the marketeers were talking about looking at Excel training. So they were, they were really, you know, diversifying, which I thought, I, I, I think that's a benefit. I think that's absolutely uh, fantastic. And um, of course, it's really good to hear that the business is um, being proactive in uh, planning for the uh, the future because business can quite often at this time be sucked into having to be reactive and innovating and adapting in order to, as you say, not just survive, but also seize upon the market opportunities that will be there in future. And there will be some. It's important, that isn't it, hugely? Of course. I think, you know, it's important as a managing director, I'm leading a group of 140 people through probably one of the most difficult times in their life. It could be personally because of other uh, husbands, wives losing jobs or income or whatever. Um, uh, you, you have to do that. But there are there are opportunities. Uh, and as I said earlier, um, you know, the, the, the opportunities are that I can see um, different silos of our business, and uh, mainly you know operations and commercialisation. Uh, for for a long time, I've been trying to think of a way to bring them together in good times. But actually, what happened naturally is they came together uh, naturally in bad times, and I think mm-hmm. that will stand the business well uh, in the future. I have to say, I'm bound by confidentiality, and uh, I can give you details of, of what I'm talking about. One of the positives for me. And all of our centres in every country are closed at the moment, have been for uh, mm-hmm. two or three weeks. One of the positive things is that all of the leases that we had signed, so in, across all the centres, something like 12, 15 new stores, branded stores, I won't give you the names, who signed leases before the virus came, have continued to fit out. So um, uh, for us, that's a very positive um, uh, step where you know our centres, when they reopen, uh, will have new tenants, a new offer, a new brand than they had when they closed. And that's great. That's something that I didn't uh, expect. Um, we're in the outlet business. Um, uh, it's slightly different from shopping centres, so we deal with surplus inventory. So, of course, we can see an opportunity for us because all tenants, wherever you are, um, uh, they, they all will have surplus inventory. How they deal with that in the high street and their outlets is, is something we're trying to understand just now. Um but that's also an opportunity for us because, again, global, I won't mention the name again, the global sports brands are coming to us and saying, do you have any spare space? Because we're going to need pop-up space for around six months to clear this surplus inventory uh, once we come back into uh, the process. Um, so I, I see uh, coming back into it. And, and uh, of course, you know, no one can say exactly when, but I just had a board meeting and I'm saying, look, I think we'll be closed most of May and during June, all of the centres will reopen in whole or parts, maybe not full trading hours, uh, maybe restricted in some way by store size. And um, so if, if that happens, then, then I'm fine. We will come back with a better offer. Uh, I think there'll be lots of, I mean, really, uh, what will happen is that the, 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 the fashion business in general, from the period of opening until the end of July, you will never, ever have a better time to buy clothes because mm. everyone will be... Accounting, um, and also this this integration of the team. Uh, I think the team will be better. They'll be more integrated, uh, and they'll be more solid together, uh, having come through this uh, adversity. So yeah, you've got to look on the bright side. Sometimes the world's still turning. 
Exactly right. And um, business, of course, in the um, interim period can only do so much. And of course, uh, to help it yeah. on its way, the government has announced um, a lot of measures to help safeguard business. But also simultaneously, a lot of them are being prevented from performing their functions in many industries. Um, do you think that the government has been doing the right things um, during this time? I think every government globally uh, will be in some way criticised about something uh, uh, being done wrong or incorrectly uh, during this time. I don't think with such an unprecedented uh, situation, any government could go into it saying I'm fully prepared or come out uh, saying uh, we've executed this perfectly. Um, I think, uh, and and just so that we're clear, I have um, 10 or 12 of my youth staff are UK uh, I, I haven't gone for any furlough or anything else. I think um, from from uh, the, the, the my friends and family, uh, I can see that that has worked uh, very well. My sister runs uh, three dental practices, and they did that through the dental process. Um, my daughter is an, op- an optician in a very well known uh, UK chain, and their 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 process is exactly the same. So I, I think uh, what I can see. Uh, the, 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 the processes that are there in terms of, of taxation, in terms of free grants. I haven't applied for any loans, but I know people who have. Uh, and it seems to be, I would think, was probably less uh, um, uh, smooth. Uh, and now it seems to be uh, coming through. Um, just to give you a perspective elsewhere, exactly the same Russia, Romania and Poland. Identical, mm-hmm. uh, different methods, different ways, different delays um, uh, and everything else. But fundamentally... Um, the whole process is broadly similar. Uh, I'm, I'm monitoring every single country from a government tax point of view, from a, a, a process. All I would say is, and, and it, of course it's all about economy and GDP and what the government can do, I would say UK seems to be leading. Um, I would say Poland is second in terms of the easement of uh, uh, you know taxes and, and, and benefits to businesses. Russia may surprise you, I would say, is third and, and Romania is fourth. Uh, not not fourth because of the um, the, 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 the the easements and offer, but just slower to deliver and execute. Uh, so there's still more uncertainty there uh, than there are in other countries. Uh, but I, I wouldn't criticise uh, any government in this situation uh, uh, because I, I think that you know anyone who stands up and criticises any government in the, the world uh, is is you know I'm, I'm very very happy that close to me there are Nightingale hospitals that are able to take me if I get this virus Mm. tomorrow. One of my partners had the virus. He was rushed into hospital with breathing processes in Belgium. Uh, He had uh, exactly the same thoughts. So, uh, you know, this is all about safety and, and, uh, you know, health uh, rather than talking, in my opinion, uh, rather than talking about political analysis. Uh, because mm. it doesn't matter who you are, uh, everyone went into this with the same uh, inability to predict and understand exactly what would happen. Exactly right. So um, if you were um, a cabinet minister yourself, uh, Brendan, and were to be at the head of the government's uh, COVID-19 response, is there anything in that sense that you would do uh, differently? Or are you quite happy with how it's panned out so far? 
I, I think, um, and I've watched a lot, um, I subscribe to the government uh, web addresses. I, I think probably a bit of earlier communication. Uh, I, I think, you know, I think people rather hear the message that Mr. Johnson has given. Let's not use the, I said it to my, old, my, my mother and father who are 90 years of age. Uh, they're saying, let's, 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 let's try and get out. I said, no, you've, you've been at home for four weeks. Not, don't waste that investment. Don't waste that protection. Just do it for another four weeks. I think that's right. Um, I think clearly, if, if there was a if there was an early uh, communication, and I'm talking about, I'm sitting in Glasgow at the moment, mm. uh, and there were there were on behalf of um, Mrs. Salmond and her team, uh, uh, very obvious ones uh, in terms of not uh, doing what, not not practicing what they preach. And, and I think the very unfortunate thing is, uh, in terms of Mr. Johnson's illness, it's probably the same thing. I think you know he was too busy uh, running the country. Um, and probably, you know, took his eye off the ball in terms of his own self-protection. Uh, I don't think that was intentional, and it's an unfortunate outcome, but that, that was the only thing. Um, it, it was good to see, although it happened later, you know, these uh, virtual uh, cabinet meetings and virtual uh, press conferences. Uh, but maybe, uh, if, 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 if I could make one comment, maybe that should have happened a bit earlier, but, you mm-hmm. know, uh, not holding that out as anything other than observation. Yeah, I can certainly see where you're coming from there, Brendan. And I think the next thing that should more than likely be forthcoming is um, some form of exit strategy from uh, this lockdown as well, because business does need to really know where it's heading. And I do understand that Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has already been quite proactive by unveiling the basis for a future lockdown exit strategy for Scotland. And there's been a lot of pressure, therefore, for Westminster to do the same. Um, It does seem um, this week that that pressure has had the desired effect, at least according to The Telegraph, because their sources have claimed that draft plans to ease UK lockdown restrictions have now been submitted to Downing Street. But it's a difficult call for government, isn't it? Because businesses do need to know what to expect. And there are a great many MPs who do advocate getting the economy going again. But it's balancing that out with the health and safety of the public to ensure that we don't have that second spike and end up back at square one. Yeah, uh, this is a very specific, uh, uh, very specific area. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the government is correct. Um, uh, maybe we have to take some financial pain. Uh, maybe we have to deal with this situation, which nobody likes uh, a little bit longer. But really, at the end of the day, you're talking about the health of the nation. And God forbid, I, I haven't been touched with it. My, my business partner has. But, you know, you, you can't imagine the, 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 the impact of your life and, uh, you know, your family if you lose uh, someone uh, during this time to this, this uh, virus. And I think... We all, I'm the same, I'm a commercial being. We all need to, uh, we all need to, to understand and, and plan. But what I would say to business leaders around um, is, is you, you don't actually have to wait until the government tells you the exact day that you're opening. You just have to plan as I have and say, okay, worst situation, three months. Maybe it's less, but let's plan for three months. Let's see exactly what we would do if we were closed for three months. And if we're only two months closed, then we're much better off. And I think business leaders need to look to themselves in these situations because it's easy to say to the politicians who are not commercial, these mm. are elected members for different reasons, commercial leaders need to put in place their plans, making assumptions. That's what business is. Uh, and business very often is about risk. And of course, maybe you put a plan in place. You know, I've just bought 250,000 masks in Russia. Maybe I'll use 150,000. Maybe I'll need half a million. But you need to put plans in place. You need to act on your best gut uh, with the knowledge you have, knowing that good management is that you may change it in three days, five days, ten days. 
Um, you can't sit in your hands and wait for the government to tell you what's happening. You, you've got to manage your business based on assumptions. Uh, of course, in this situation, and I say it often to my staff because they say they don't know, and I say, well, you just have to make an assumption. Okay, what do you think is going to happen? And of course, when you do that, you know, probably in this situation, normally I pride myself in being able to predict up to, you know, 90% accuracy. In this situation, it can be maybe 50 or 60%. But if you put all of these assumptions in place and then plan like that and set up systems and processes and procedures that allow you to adapt and change, and we, my company, are very fortunate in that in terms of uh, I can make any decision on behalf of, of Fashion House. And, and if it's something that I don't want to make directly make the decision, then I can share it with my partners. And in almost a heartbeat, we can make a decision. Other larger corporations, institutions uh, may not have that that um, that uh, luxury, but they should be putting in place uh, reserved matters that mean the board can make very, very fast decisions according to what the, the, the government says. So I would say, of course, listen to the government, watch the, the government um, uh, in terms of when you're allowed to reopen, but plan already what you think it's going to be and then adjust your plan. Uh, and that way, both commerce, commerce and government come together uh, and, uh, and have a much, much better and much better planned uh, reopening rather than just, you know, sitting in your hands and waiting for the government to tell you uh, everything is going to happen. We're all in the same boat. We all have to act. I think that's absolutely right. Um, it comes back to that word proactivity, doesn't it, uh, more than anything? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to say, uh, Brendan, um, in Fashion House's parliamentary review um, article, just looking at that for a moment, for those listening who haven't read it, um, you do say that one of the fundamental successes of Fashion House as a business was the investment that you put in people who are incredibly talented, passionate and full of positive attitude and that investment in people has more than paid dividends during this time hasn't it when they've been really mucking in and getting on with it despite of these difficulties yeah and, and that's what i said earlier you know we have a kind of family attitude here um, uh, i i have i have people who send me email, email saying i'm sitting at home i've done everything that i'm due to do under my is there anything else that you want me to do um, uh, and and you know i think that's part of the whole process of I believe that um, if, if you if you can openly uh, say to staff, you know, we're going to preserve your, your your situation as much as we possibly can, and for us that's three months. Um, uh, we're not going to make any changes. You know, we're not going to. Um, uh, you know, we, we you know we, we haven't sacked anyone. We haven't um, changed anyone's package. Uh, well, of course, we've got people who are working from home. Uh, but I think, uh, and and it'll be interesting. I haven't asked them. I think our staff knew that's the way that we, our culture is. Um, uh, very interesting, our founder member, Patrick Brendan Bosca, joins our Friday call. And, and I said it to him openly because he came onto the call, he's got 140 of our staff there. And the first thing he said was, I really miss you all. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a testament to, to our culture because he does, and they could all see that he does. Um, and uh, that, that, that's part of our, our, our process. And, and I say it again, you know, people fundamentally, they care how much you care in business. And, and I don't care, you know, there, there, there are lots of incentive programs and, and, you know, selling schemes and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, people invest where they can see that they are cared about. And I think in this time, uh, that's, some, that's a strength that we have uh, it's a culture that we've had. Our business is 25 years old, uh, and we have people who work for us for 25 years. It's a, it's a very, very 
uh, interesting process. Um, uh, we try to look after our people because we, you know, our, our business is people. So yes, I believe that the the, the years of of you know treating people well, um, uh, you know, it's very easy to criticise. We have a no blame culture uh, in, in in fashion house. If people really try something that they think is good and they do it and it works out that it doesn't work out at all, then they try something else. But they they don't um, they don't get huge uh, issues from us. Um, it's, it's quite a unique environment, very accessible in terms of the board and all the staff. We are still quite small. I mean, 140 people sounds big, but it's really, you know, 40, 50 in, in, in Russia, 40, 50 in Poland, 40, 50 in, in Romania. Um, and these teams of 50, 50, 50 collectively work very closely uh, and everything else. The thing I'm, I'm really pleased about, and, and actually I heard it today from uh, on a, on a news broadcast, is that my staff are openly saying to me, I miss all my team members. I just can't wait to get into the office and have lunch, you know, around this table and chat and, and interact and everything, which is also a good thing. Um, so I, I think they'll be rushing back. I think the team will be closer. I think there'll be this legacy of we got through it together and we were looked after. Uh, and I can only see in the future that that will uh, generate uh, loyalty and better endeavour uh, for, uh, for our assets. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm cautiously optimistic about the process. It's fantastic to hear there's that optimism there. And uh, I think you're right. We do take face-to-face contact, especially with our colleagues, for granted. And it's important there as well, Brendan, that you mentioned culture as being such an important part of business life because part of this podcast series is to bring together various different perspectives on leadership. And company culture is absolutely integral when it comes to leadership, isn't it? You can't buy it. You simply can't buy it. Uh, and um, we, we, we are fortunate. We're an international company. Uh, and one of the things that we learned very early on uh, is that, for example, we have Christmas parties. We decide to have the Christmas party in one country each year. So it might be Russia, it might be Poland. And everyone from the other countries comes. doesn't matter whether you're a driver, a secretary, a receptionist. It doesn't matter if you're a handyman or, or you're, a, you're a, a, a general manager of the country. Everyone comes to that um, uh, party. Uh, we all, you know, we, we there's no cost to them. They come and stay in a, uh, it's not a superb hotel, but they stay, they fly. Um, and, and I noticed that, you know, the, the investment in each of these individuals um, uh, may be five, six, seven hundred uh, euros, uh, sometimes even less, because some of the staff say, look, you know, I'm friendly with this girl here. We can share a room in a hotel, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, that uh, is a relatively small investment, but I can tell you, you get that back in spades. Why? Because they're saying to their family and their friends, I'm flying to Russia, Poland, it doesn't matter, uh, because Brendan, Mark and Patrick are paying for my flights to my hotel so that we can have a party. And uh, of course, we always have some meetings and different things that that's that, that year-end view. But the, 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 the loyalty and the, 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 the payback that you get from that, you can't buy. You simply can't buy. And I think uh, coming out of this, you know, the, the, the culture, and I have to say, it, it, it's more, I would say, I'm trying to describe it, it's not something that we set out uh, on day one of our business and said we have to create this culture. It's just that we have a board and also investors who are very interested in the people that work for us. Um, and in my Friday wind down, you know, I'm talking about someone's daughter is getting married and different things. And you, they just, they, you, you, I think if you invest some time, you know, to know your staff and understand what's important to them, the culture then just flows through. I'm not so sure 
if you're not innately, um, uh, you know, a, a personable person in terms of a leadership, mm. you can learn that, or you know, you can go to courses and try and do it. I think it's it's very, uh, it's a very innate thing. Uh, but we are very, very fortunate to have it. Very fortunate. And um, so, yeah, uh, that culture for me, we're a people business. It's it's all about culture. And I feel for, and um, I'm not criticising at all, but I feel for those people in this. Uh, scenario and, and you know I've seen them on, on the news who you know instantly disposed of all of their staff uh, to cut costs or didn't furlough and then did furlough and, and all of these different things because you know I, I cannot see how these these, these leaders uh, will be able to engender the same loyalty or the same quality of staff uh, in the future uh, and I worry for them because it will take them a long time to recover from what I'm sure were commercial uh, uh, you know, un, un, absolutely inevitable uh, decisions, uh, but they, that that will have an impact long term uh, on their business. I'm sure. I think so, um, also. And um, I did get the impression from reading your Parliamentary Review article as well that when it came to recruitment, the business was very people-centric, looking very much at attitude and motivation rather than ready-made skills. And with that in mind, when it comes to employees and indeed good leaders, um, some people do think that people are born good at what they do, while others kind of take the standpoint of thinking, well, you can actually learn and develop your skills to become a good employee or indeed a good leader. Um, I do align more with the latter perspective, but I think from a certain degree, there are some qualities such as that self-motivation and that drive that do have to come from within. Would you agree with that, Brendan? Yeah, I think, um, and I'm... (laughs) I'm very fortunate in terms of my upbringing and, and my, my mother told me from a very early age you can do anything you want and, I, and I've, I've continued that basis ever since. Some people would disagree. Uh, but I think, you know, my, my, my three words, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, they're in the article. So passion, talent and attitude. Um, uh, you know, you don't have to be the most uh, qualified. You don't have to be, um, you know, double graduate, you know, MBA and all the rest of it. And I am an MBA, so, you know, uh, I do that thing as well. But if you've got passion and talent and attitude, and, and uh, the attitude thing is we have in spades all of our business. And sometimes attitude is difficult to manage, but the passion, talent and attitude combination, uh, I would say particularly passionate. And, and we are we're a very passionate business, passionate about our assets. Uh, I remember once many years ago <laughs> getting into a taxi in Prague where we had a, a shop at an outlet centre and I said, I'm going to uh, the fashion arena, it was called. And I said, I oh, said, oh, I know the guy that owns that. And I said, mm-hmm. I, 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 I know the guy that owns it. Uh, and he said, and it was actually a member of my staff. And, and he was so passionate about this uh, project that the, the taxi driver was clear that he managed it. And we laugh about that still because that passion you know, we, we say in, internally, you know, people would bleed fashion house. Uh, uh, and, and that comes from that passion, uh, talent and attitude. Um, we, and we have it, we have it all over our business. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult to manage, but it's always productive and always, in, 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 you know, we have innovation and all the rest of it. Uh, so that, that's my word. If you, if, you, if you come into an interview with me, uh, if you have that experience sometime in the future, Passion, talent and attitude uh, in that order, I'm absolutely yeah. And we've talked an awful lot there, Brendan, about that um, business model and uh, the style of leadership there that you have um, at the business. Um, what would you say have been some of the real influences behind that style of business and of leadership that you have implemented at Fashion House? 
I think the fundamental basics, I think most people in my situation would say the same thing. I think, you know, you, you, you have an innate um, uh, self-confidence and, and positive positivity. Um, uh, then uh, through your life and I for three, uh, you meet people who are absolutely mentors to you. Uh, and maybe I've just been very lucky with those mentors. Um, I wouldn't name them here. Uh, they all know who they are. But I've been very fortunate around 30 uh, meeting uh, an individual that that uh, really, uh, you know, he, he's now head of a global company and we worked very closely together for four or five years, learned huge amounts uh, from him. He came from a completely non, uh, he came from a completely non-university background, uh, but I'm absolutely sure that he would be a professor if he went to university. Um, uh, and then uh, slightly later, um, I joined a development company and the managing director there who is kind of notorious in the industry, uh, he kind of picked me up and, and uh, then a uh, very interesting, you know, process. Uh, for me, it was a new discipline and everything else, but I learned huge amounts from him. And then I was very, very lucky because I joined, I, I left that company. I'll use first names for the purposes of the exercise. So Martin, uh, you know, walked and talked me through a process and really developed me between 30 and 40. And then I joined a new company around the age of 40, and the MD there was called Nick, again, no, no surname. And unbeknown to me, um, he was Martin's best friend. Uh, and Martin phoned Nick, and then I, I kind of really springboarded, and Nick adopted me in the same way that Martin did. And uh, I think, I think you're, you know, I have the benefit of, you know, these were all guys that were 15, 20 years older than me when I was kind of working with them. Uh, I don't know what they, you know, maybe they saw the passion and the talent, and, and I was certainly very, very keen to to learn and develop and do all of that. Um, but I think that comes from from looking at people that you respect and, and learn from around about. Uh, I did an MBA when I was 45. I, I would recommend anyone who wants to do that to do that, uh, just from a confidence point of view and, and, and just widening your perspective to, in fact, managing change, perfect example. So big part of an MBA course, uh, which I've been using in the last uh, few weeks. So I, I think, you know, th th there is a fundamental that is, is um, yeah, I think if, if you are able and, and, and you know, I, I'm not the best person in detail, uh, you know, don't, don't ask me to review an Excel spreadsheet in detail. I can look at the headline numbers. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I, I can do, uh, and I'm very proud of that, is I can get people to trust me and follow me. Um, and, and I think that that's what you need as an innate skill. The other things roundabout uh, accounting, uh, you know, negotiation, all the rest of it, I think I think come through from that. Uh, but mentors, you know, pick your mentors very very well. Pick your business partners uh, very very well. Uh, and I think that, that that's how you you create and develop good leadership skills. I think you raised some very interesting points there because sometimes the most inspiring leaders throughout one's life and one's career are those mentors who do inspire people, do show people the ropes, but people who aren't necessarily in the public eye. And I think culturally in the UK, sometimes we can be tempted to think of leaders as being people who are in the public eye, such as celebrities, such as politicians, such as sports personalities. And with that in mind, Brendan, do you think in the business environment in particular that we recognise good leadership as much as we should in the UK? Um, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the biggest comment that you can see about, um, and, and let's call it, you know, managing directors like me, CEOs, is that they get huge salaries. Uh, and, you know, of course, um, uh, there, there's, you know, if, if you're very, very good at what you do and you can produce results, 
um, then, of course, you can secure good salaries. That's human nature, nothing else. Uh, and why do we why do we secure good salaries? It's good salaries so that we can give quality of life and education to our children. We can help our family, and, you know, and have a have a nice uh, quality of business. What I would say is there's a misunderstanding about the the, the value of good le- leaders' contribution to businesses. Uh, and there's lots of very good examples of that, uh, and there's lots of very bad examples of that. I'm not going to uh, offer that in, in this format. Uh, but I would say that uh, when you've got businesses, particularly multinational businesses, not, not small like my business, but when you've got people at the top who are responsible strategically for the employment of, you know, uh, 10, 15, 20,000 people, uh, you know, the huge industries, um, then uh, they, their decisions, their focus uh, and their quality, passion, I would say as well, is going to ensure that these, you know, thousands and thousands of people remain uh, in, in a job. Uh, but also, I think that's another thing that is often misunderstood. You know, don't don't for a minute misunderstand that. You know, if you're you're managing a business with twenty thousand employees, uh, it's likely that the tax uh, bill for your property uh, that is generated by VAT, uh, that's generated by uh, national insurance and, and all all the other taxes that the the the, um, the employers pay, and also. You think of 22,000 people's salaries going into the community and buying food, buying services, buying cars, buying holidays. I mean, these people, I think, are misunderstood because in isolation, their salary, and sometimes these people are making millions, but the benefit to the overall economy uh, uh, from a tax, from HMRC point of view, is huge. And then also the, 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 the wider benefit, which is somewhat intangible, is absolutely massive. And if you look at the salary against these leaders, um, and I'm saying, you know, there are good and bad, but against these leaders who are making business, they're making money, they're growing, they're employing more people, they're developing. I think these guys, um, uh, you know, I don't think people generally understand the contribution that they make to the economy and to paying taxes. And I don't think that there's any relativity to a salary of a million pounds a year versus probably tens of millions uh, in terms of contribution. And I think that's something that needs to be more equitable. You can't just look at one person's salary uh, divided by the average salary of his employees. You've got to look at a wider contribution to the economy uh, and to the, the, the local business. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, there, Brandon. And um, we've already said today, um, in terms of when, for those people who are aspiring to become leaders, to pick your mentors, pick the people that you surround yourself with. But if you were to offer some other advice to the next generation of emerging um, leaders, younger people especially, what would you tell them, Brendan? I, I think um, uh, very simple advice, and, and you know you've heard this a, a lot. It's, it's very cliched, um, and you know the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, and um, uh, I've met people in my life uh, who think that the world owes them uh, success and leadership. It doesn't. You know, you have to do it yourself. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, again, there's there's lots of cliches. Um, leaders don't let things happen to them. Leaders make things happen. Uh, and either you're a person who, you know, lets things happen to you or you're a person who makes things happen. Now, that's cliched. It's not often easy. People are in difficult situations and they just need, uh, you know, a bit of luck and a bit of chance. But what I, I would say, and my father said this to me when I was very young, 
you know, if you get into a job and you see the, the things that people don't want to do, do that. Uh, because it'll make you stand out from everyone else uh, in terms of the organisation. And I'm absolutely sure once you're seen as something that's, who's, who's happy to, you know, have the involvement in the organisation doing something that nobody else wants to do successfully, then you'll, you'll motivate, you know, you'll get on. Uh, and I think people, you know, uh, you know, again, you know, get into it, work hard and um, look for opportunities. And um, I think, you know, the, the biggest advice was, you know, and, and, you know, it's the same, you know, don't be frightened to speak to the lead. Don't be frightened to talk and interact with people who lead your business. And and don't be frightened to jump uh, levels on that. Um, uh, I've never yet had anyone kind of approach me for, you know, some advice or something like that that I've turned away. But you always remember these people. Um, and it's not about, you know, going over your boss's head. It's not about anything. But any chance you get, uh, to, uh, to to orientate, integrate, uh, and understand the structure of your organisation, and particularly who's the key influencers. And then once you get in front of these guys, just try and raise your head a little bit. There's lots of ways of doing that. There's lots of social environments where it may not be so uh, perceived to be so um, uh, difficult. Um, so if you're in a company, you know, an event or conference or something like that, walk up to these guys and say, "What do you think? What do you think? What can I do?" And ask them the same questions that you're asking yourself. How do I get on? And they'll tell you uh, and take that advice and and, uh, and and do it. Sometimes with a bit of luck, but um, I'm, I'm pretty certain, yeah, pretty certain the harder you work, the luckier you'll be, you will be in whatever you do. And if we continue to think about the uh, the future as well, Brendan, before I do uh, let you go, um, do tell me what you envision the next year holds for yourself and for Fashion House Group and what you hope to achieve in that time, not just in navigating the current COVID-19 situation, but also in looking forward once we've emerged from this pandemic as well. I think we've got some difficult times ahead. Um, I think, uh, you know, m- marketing as was now becomes safety. I think we need to um, we need to you know reach out, which we've done, uh, follow our values, which are partnership with our tenants. Uh, I think we need to understand as much their issues as our issues. Uh, I'm very pleased to 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 say that uh, from my experience, the financial community, uh, I would say, are as flexible as I have ever seen them in terms of, you know, us going and looking at uh, changing, amending and and, and, uh, and and doing things and making requests, uh, which is great. Um, I think, as I said earlier, um, uh, nobody knows uh, what's going to happen here, but you must make assumptions and must, must make plans. Um, and, uh, you know, talk to everyone, get as much intelligence as you possibly can uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the next stages. What have I said to my group? Uh, I've said that, uh, you know, we are, uh, we are week five into my plan is three months closed. I don't think we will be three months closed. I think it will be two and a bit. Um, and then I've said that don't think we'll have any reasonable, um, uh, anywhere near reasonable normal business until September. And for us as a retail business, that's back to school. Uh, in uh, in Russia, Romania, and Poland, I think that uh, I, I will be planning um, uh, and talking to my tenants about having some kind of reserve. So you know, talk to people now, not about solving the problem today, uh, but talk to them and say what happens if we have to close again in February, March next year on the same basis, and then we've got a year to plan for that. So, you know, if you've got a year to plan and, for example, you know, you, you have to agree the cost between you, then let's put that money aside little by little over the next year 
or plan to put half of it aside so that you get half of the financial impact. Um, so it's it, it, things like that. Um, I think, you know, the, 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 I, I, I have no understanding of when we're going to get, uh, for example, a virus. I wouldn't even put a, a, a sort of estimate in that. That's other people who are much more expert in that than I am. But I'm planning to have, you know, uh, now until September, pretty dr- dramatically changed business. September to December, I would say approaching near normal, something that we can understand and be reasonable on. And I think in terms of the the, the indebtedness, uh, the solution uh, from a fashion point of view, the stock, the surplus stock, I think you can look at, uh, not, not in a bad way, but that gradually through 2021, uh, easing out and, and, you know, people paying off uh, debts that they're owing during this period and uh, giving payment plans, uh, you know, easing stock into the system uh, over a year. Uh, and then uh, I think 2022, uh, we will start to get back to where we were uh, in 19. So th- that, that will be my comment just now from my industry. Um, I think the, the other thing that uh, I, w- I would say is that um, you can see there's a wake-up call in online uh, because some grocery, of course, online has, has increased massively uh, and that will continue. I think contactless payments will become the norm. Nobody will want to use cash or be less inclined to use cash. These are things that uh, that uh, I think uh, are fair. Um, uh, I think you know international travel and uh, vacation. Will, will for sure have an impact in our business because the cost will go up, the flights will be less frequent, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then I think, you know, the, 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 the whole fashion industry at the moment is looking at changing rooms, uh, the fact that if someone has just tried on a dress, would they want to try on again? Uh, looking at, you know, plexi screens in a beautiful Tommy Hilfiger store, which may not look so uh, brand, but, the, you know, it's a, it's a physical need for safety of the staff. Um, and then, you know, the, the online business, I think, will, will naturally merge with offline uh, because they, they're, they're interdependent. Uh, one of my um, tenants, again, no names, uh, is talking about allowing customers to take five items maximum out of their store, take them home, try them on and bring them back if they leave a credit card uh, uh, and a deposit. So that's, you know, that's someone coming into the store and saying, no, I don't want to try it on here. I'd rather try it on at home uh, because of, you know, uh, the virus, uh, etc. So there's lots of innovation and lots of um, uh, different things that are uh, driving, trying. People are looking at 3D scanning for sizing. So you won't try on the item, you will be 3D scanned, and then the item will give them to you based on your 3D scan uh, uh, at the best size possible. Uh, so uh, lots of different, uh, lots of different things uh, happening. But I would say 2022 uh, until we get back to 2019, and from now until the end of 21, it will be the the resolution of all of the issues that have happened over that period. Hopefully, I don't know anything about that, uh, the, 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 the scientific community and governments uh, will have produced some kind of virus uh, in between then uh, and now. 
Let's certainly uh, hope so. And I've got to say, Brendan, it's been most insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on uh, today's programme. And what I think would be fantastic for the listeners is in a few months' time, once we start to see the fog lift a little bit and we start to understand just how the market is changing and how circumstances are developing, if we could even have you back on the air with us just to look at this retrospectively and just see how things are panning out and also catch up on how uh, Fashion House Group is doing. Um, But I've got to say, thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, no problem. I'm, I'm delighted to come back and share. Um, and in fact, just as a, as a last point, a uh, very interesting point, actually. Um, we, as any other business has, we have competitors, uh, both local and, and uh, international. And uh, it's the first time that we've ever had a reach out, both us to them and them to us, uh, saying, what are you going to do uh, when we reopen? Can we share ideas mm. and everything else? And again, I would say that's a positive uh, and you can see, you know, all of the food retailers coming together and advertising together. That's a positive first thing. So um, I think that there are some positives come out of it, but I, uh, it's been a pleasure uh, to spend some time and I'll be delighted to come back uh, and give you hopefully uh, a positive update on where Fashion House Group are in a few months' time. I think that would be fantastic. Brendan, thank you. That was Brendan O'Reilly, Managing Director of Fashion House Group. I hope you all enjoyed the interview and of course learning more about how the whole team at Fashion House Group is continuing to raise standards even throughout this challenging time. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. In August 2015, Lord Blunkett was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Uh, 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the 
the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And 
one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer, where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I am Matthew O'Neill. Hope you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, since sadly all of the pubs remain closed, Matthew and I will be sitting in our respective front rooms with a bottle of Merlot and raising a glass to raising standards. Hopefully we can reoccupy our usual corner in the Westminster Arms soon. Remember, look after yourselves, stay home, it does save lives. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.